Welcome to the Backyard Professor videos. I uh, was just wrapping up yet another reading of Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces, a timeless classic even though it has received its share of critics and criticisms. And as he demonstrated the old interpretations, the old mythologies, the old theologies just no longer work in our era because things change. That's just the reality we have to face. So in the process of the change, which is ubiquitous, everything changes always. Whether it's institutions, politics, people, ourselves, the earth, society, our neighborhood, new buildings are built, apartments are put in across the streets, we get new neighbors, etc. Through this change, perhaps the best approach to all of this is to be flexible, to not be too uh, too concrete and dogmatic, and of course, the great scholars of mythology uh, have always noticed that the improper way to interpret the mythologies is to concretize them. We miss the implications. We miss the meanings of the symbols. It's like the famous saying of the man who pointed at the moon. Don't focus on the finger. You've got to look at what the finger is pointing to. Something to that effect. In LDS apologetics, we also have had a very interesting change with some subtle shifting, and it's that subtle shifting that I want to share with you in this video with a superb uh, example that we have in front of us. One of the very finest Mormon apologists to enter the scene over the course of the last, say, dozen years or so. The old guard of Mormon apologetics, the Farms Foundation, has been basically dismantled now for a decade. And in the wake of the, what do you call it, the, uh, the smackdown of the church against those kinds of apologetics that make enemies where enemies need not be made instead of loving our neighbor as ourselves, a new type of apologetic Mormon scholar has more or less arisen and one of the best representatives is Terrell Givens. The man is articulate, he is intelligent, he writes well, and he gets published by Oxford University Press quite often, actually, which is really good because they are legitimately peer-reviewed, and uh, they don't just let so-called smut apologetics out there that attacks everyone instead of dealing with the issues. Gibbons has written a series of texts. The one I want to talk about today 
is feeding the flock. Uh, his first, I have it around here somewhere, his first book in this, I believe it's right here, yes, was Wrestling the Angel. This one deals with the foundations of Mormon thought, cosmos, God, humanity. Oxford University Press. I believe it was 2016 or 2017. I believe this book on feeding the flock, the second one, discussing church policy, how to be a Mormon community, etc. How the brethren need to be obeyed and followed and all that. And Yeah, this was 2017. In this book, Feeding the Flock, Givens has a most remarkable discussion on the idea of prophecy. Prophecy in Mormonism, beginning on page 233. Now, I can't go through all of this uh, several pages worth I've picked and chosen some highlights of his approach to the to understanding the spiritual gifts that are to be had within the church since the church claims to be a genuine restoration of what was had before and since the claim of early Christianity was that they had the spiritual gifts also, and therefore Joseph Smith brought that back. This is the idea. So on page 233, Given says, As a consequence, many besides Joseph Smith practiced the gift of prophecy, since it was again to be had. It wasn't just the prophet or the apostles. It was everybody who was practicing the gift of prophecy in the church's formative years as part of the Kirtland Temple Pentecost of 1836. Prophesying was frequently in evidence, Gibbons says. At this season, Joseph and the leadership spent long hours into the night, noting on March 29th a burst of prophesying and giving glory to God, followed the next day by Smith and others prophesying with the spirit of prophecy on this occasion being poured out upon the congregation itself. Meanwhile, in England, one convert reported in October 1841 that prophecy is common in all of our meetings, and that was way over across the ocean in England. Uh, what Givens doesn't say, which, of course, being an apologist, you can't give the full story of all sides. You have to do a, a faith-promoting agenda to make sure the brethren stay pleased. He doesn't describe William L. William McClellan, not William McClellan, yeah, the William McClellan uh, information between him and uh, Orson Pratt and several of others who said that, well, they, they, what caused all of the prophesying in the Kirtland occasion that Givens here is talking about is they ended up spending the entire night drinking up all of the sacramental wine because it was so delicious and all and it was a great big party that everybody got drunk and of course they were prophesying. William McClellan even took Orson Pratt to task and he said you of all people should know 
what really happened there. You were one of the ones who were involved with all of the drinking and all that. So, But see, that's a part of the history that Lord K. Packer would say is not very useful, you see. And so we gently have to leave that out. But with the with the publication, I have I have both sets, the Journals of William E. McClellan by Ships and Welch, and I've also got the William E. McClellan Papers by Stan Larson and Samuel Passy. Uh, so I have both sides of the divide, so to speak, of how to handle the William McClellan information. So this, again, is a theme that we have to be very careful with when we're being told Mormon history. There's always a subtle dimension, right? There's always something that is either being interpreted in such a manner as to make you feel good, or else there's something that's being left out, or else there's something that's being added to in order for the Spirit to come and testify to you that, yes, this account of Tarot Givens is teaching you the truth, etc. Uh, that's why you have to read widely and deeply, because you just are not going to get the straight skinny from a Mormon apologist. Now, that part of apologetics has not changed. I sincerely don't see it ever changing any time in the near future. They just can't give the historical verification and verity. They must manipulate the record. There's just, there is no other way they can present the history and remain disciple scholars, as Neil A. Maxwell admonished people to do. Disciple scholars, meaning, of course, that whatever you research, and we welcome and encourage you to research any and everything about Mormonism, but please do come to the faithful, faith-promoting conclusions that we want you to. That way you're a true disciple scholar. It's, it's ludicrous, but that's how they treat it. We see the same here with Terrell Givens, but there's a lot more here that he talks about, about prophecy and Mormonism, that I do want to take notice of without question. Givens goes on in his account. He says, Often patriarchal blessings, ordinations, and other priesthood blessings included very specific predictions and promises pertaining to the future. And that is the definition of prophecy, right? That is what makes a prophet a prophet, regardless of all the apologetic shenanigans of B.H. Roberts saying the most important part of a prophet is being a prophet teacher, or not necessarily prophesying the truth, but of giving us correct teachings, blah, blah, blah. No, prophecy is predicting the future and having it become fulfilled. That is the essence. Everyone knows that. The Mormons who continue to try to downplay that aspect of it are fooling nobody. Just so you know. Yeah. So often, uh, when Party P. Pratt, for instance, and I like this example very much, I'm glad he's using Party P. Pratt because he's demonstrating not only Joseph Smith, the prophet, but many of the apostles, his followers, state presidents, bishops, 
the ordinary riffraff in the congregations. Everybody prophesied. And it was talked about, it was discussed, it was admired. Everybody oohed and awed over how spectacular this, this gift was. Yeah. Barney Pratt was ordained an apostle by Smith. Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer. They promised that he would cross the mighty deep and spend years laboring in distant countries in great and incessant toil. Finally, he would be dragged before the authorities for his religion and spend time in strong dungeons and gloomy prisons. <laughs> That's kind of a depressing prophecy, but Pratt was up to the task. He did go on missions in Great Britain and Chile. He was at one time sentenced to be shot by a military court-martial in Missouri, and he languished seven months in various jails and prisons, some of it in heavy chains. So see, that's what I mean by an example here in early Mormonism of prophecy. Well, Gibbons goes on to say, and this is on page 234 now, Sometimes Mormon elders would prophesy more spontaneously. For instance, Heber C. Kimball had visited a despondent Pratt and promised that his ailing infertile wife would recover and bear a son while he would evangelize in Toronto and England and have gold beyond counting. All came to pass as he foretold though Pratt had to be content with interpreting the promise of gold beyond counting as figurative. <laughs> There's always a catch when it comes to the money, isn't there? Dang it, man. Well, three out of four ain't bad, right? Well, Pratt could be the promulgator as well as the recipient of the gift of prophecy. John Taylor recorded on occasion or an occasion when Brother Pratt prophesied concerning me in a manner that almost made my hair stand on my head. Much of that prophecy has since been fulfilled. Well, we have to take his word for it, but the point is, prophecy was alive and well, it was abundant, and it was everywhere, and it was being done by all different stations, ways, and people, right? Men and women. Others would similarly note Pratt's gift of prophecy. David Whitmer wrote that Joseph Smith gave many true prophecies, but this was no Whitmer. Oh, whoops. But th this was no more than many of what the other brethren did either. And among those other brethren, he singled out Pratt in particular. Then I'll skip a little bit here, and he says, Pratt prophesied that the Lord had many people in the city of New York. And when they were on a mission, they began to speak in tongues and prophesy. And so he, he prophesied many people were here in New York. And he had now come by the power of the Holy Spirit to gather them in his fold. Pratt stayed, and within a month, he recorded, we had 15 preaching places in the city, all of which were filled to overflowing. We preached about 11 times a week besides visiting from house to house. We soon commenced baptizing and continued doing so 
almost daily during the winter and the spring. As with healings, prophesies, prophecies of Mormon elders and even prophets did not always come to pass. A little bit of refreshing honesty here, isn't it? Not all prophecies came to pass, given so. After the saint's expulsion from Jackson County, Missouri, in 1833, Pratt declared that if he ever spoke by the Spirit of God, he then did. And he prophesied that we shall be enabled to return to our houses by January 1st to enjoy the fruit of our labor and none to molest or make afraid. I mean, it sounds grand, yes. Well, a few years later, the Mormons had been expelled from the county and the state of Missouri. Dozens of LDS faithful of the church's first generation were promised they would live to see Christ's return. And that was well over 150 years ago, and all of those people are dead now. But, you know, what the heck. It sounded fantastic then, didn't it? On page 235, Givens notes, Smith failed at other times to accurately gauge the future. His revelation that the Temple of Missouri, the New Jerusalem, would be built in this generation went unfulfilled. And of course, Orson Pratt tried to do the Mormon apologetic spin and describe that it was everybody else's fault, not the Lord's. <laughs> and uh, that went over like a lead balloon. In 1830, he wrote while in Salem, Massachusetts, that its wealth pertaining to gold and silver shall be yours. But nothing happened. No fulfillment unfolded, is how Givens puts it. Earlier, he had promised in the name of the Lord that Oliver Cowdery, Joseph Knight, Hiram Page, and Josiah Stowell would succeed even in securing the Canadian copyright to the Book of Mormon. Yet the enterprise failed. Defenders explained that the men had not proceeded with an eye single to God's glory, as the revelation stipulated. So finally on page 236, Givens, I'm going to skip a couple other uh, trivial things. Young pronounced prophecy after prophecy from the pulpit. In 1849, he prophesied that we would have an abundant crop this year. The harvest of 1849 was abundant, reported the history of Utah. In 1851, he prophesied that the time is near when all the emigrations of the saints from Europe and the East will come by way of California instead of by the way of Mississippi. Some, though not much future European immigration, was by sea to Utah through California ports. At one gathering, he cheerily noted that nearly every man who had spoken during the conference had prophesied. Nearly every man who had spoken at conference had prophesied. Boy, you don't see that today, do you? Wow. And so it would be if a hundred others were to speak, and he would be glad of it if all the Lord's people were prophets. Well, Heber C. Kimball was so renowned for his gifts in these years that Young called him my prophet, and he prophesies for me. Those two were pretty close buddies, right? 
Well, much prophecy heard in the 19th century sermons was of a fairly general nature, though. John Taylor prophesied in the name of Jesus Christ that the kingdom of God would roll on. I prophesy that this is only just the beginning, as it were, of the great work of the gathering. Said Orson Pratt, I prophesy that any man who will be humble before the Lord shall receive knowledge from the Almighty that his kingdom has been established in these latter days. And that's what Lorenzo Snow proclaimed. Even such generic pronouncements were fading with the dawn of the 20th century in the contemporary church the language of prophecy has been transmuted into the language of testimony. I testify, rather than I prophesy, is the standard idiom by which faith is affirmed and doctrine taught from today's pulpits. Now understand what that means recognize something astonishing in Terrell Givens' treatment of the gift of prophecy. It doesn't exist today in Mormonism, and he admitted that. It has been changed into just bearing testimony. Make no mistake about it, bearing your testimony is not on the same level at all of the gift of prophecy in any manner. Notice something else that really stuck out to me personally is that Givens can't give any prophet or apostle or stake president or bishop or anyone in Relief Society, Sunday School, or sacrament meeting any prophecies, nor any discussions about the amazing prophecies that are happening and being fulfilled and how it builds up the faith in the saints, he can't give any of this past 1861. That's a hundred and sixty years ago. He can give some dubious examples in the early church, but notice he doesn't mention any prophets or apostles or any Relief Society people in my own lifetime, which I'm basically his age, 60 years old. Nothing from Joseph Fielding Smith, nothing from Harold B. Lee, David O. McKay, uh, Spencer W. Kimball, uh, Gordon B. Hinckley, Thomas Monson, Russell M. Nelson. There is no prophecies occurring with any of the twelve apostles of any of the administrations of prophets since Lorenzo Snow that Gibbons has found and is able to elaborate on and talk about. There's nothing today at all that he can talk about and explain and delight in, like they used to in Joseph Smith's day. Prophecy has ceased. The gifts have disappeared. Now that is a breathtaking admission 
I'm not sure if you're aware of just how significant that is. Tertullian, one of the early Christian fathers, uh, in dealing with the church back then, he said, you who proclaim the gifts of the Spirit, where are they? Why are you not healing? Why are you not having visions and prophesying and helping us along through our plagues, our concerns with the pagans, etc.? And he did something that just blew everybody away. The gifts of the Spirit had left the church, so Tertullian left the church. Now that's big. That's huge. Because the gifts of the Spirit are supposed to help the saints unify and navigate through the hard times. But we've had no prophecies about COVID-19. We weren't warned COVID-19 was on the way and get prepared. We aren't being told anything about the future at all. The Mormon church is on defense mode. All they're doing now is sending out so-called rescue missions to Sweden and Boise, Idaho and God knows where else and every one of them are failing. Everyone keeps giving talks about stay in the boat, remain in the boat. There's plenty of room for you here in this church, etc. There's no prophecies being fulfilled. In fact, the last so-called putative prophecy that was maybe given was Jeffrey R. Holland a few years back when he said that the church is growing so rapidly, so fast, so grandly, so magnificent, so incredibly, unstoppably, powerfully that we're going to have a hundred thousand missionaries in 2020 or 2019 or whenever he said it was. Nothing happened. Not even close. Of course, then if you fudge and say, well, every member is a missionary, he didn't mean it that way. And we all know that. So, here's the thing. The apologetic in favor of the foundations of Mormon thought with church and praxis by Terrell Givens, that's just not convincing, is it? If all you can do is show a couple of odd items here and there from Joseph Smith and Parley Pratt and perhaps one or two from Heber C. Kimball and Brigham Young and then stop and call it good and imagine that prophecy is still here in the church without giving any examples all the way up through today, uh, you're bankrupt. That is an astonishing thing that Terrell Givens does and shows is, well, yeah, back then, but nothing much today. Here's the good news. Our spirituality does not have to reside or derive from someone else. There really is a spirituality that is, can be, and should be available. Now, true, there's a lot of people who are going through the, oh, the transition, the difficulty, the anger phase. There's a lot of people who are stuck in the anger phase. I understand that. I've been there. I've done that. And every now and then it does crop back up, depending on what stupidity is spouted on what social issue that shows up, which is pretty much every week. Uh, these guys just appear to me to be floundering. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to handle all of this. So, 
there is spirituality available. Now, rather than always dealing with the shortcomings of Mormonism, which are multitudinous, all you have to do is start reading and you can see the problems. It doesn't matter whether it's the old farms material or the new apologetic of various peoples. It doesn't matter who you're reading. It doesn't matter what you listen to in general conferences, etc. It's all blasé. Uh, nothing is really educational and instructional anymore. It's all just milk toast, right? But while it's important to point that out, it is important to move beyond and get out of that anger phase. Sometimes it's difficult for some people. I spent quite a few years in it as an atheist, reading a boatload of atheist stuff. And while they do have their purpose, while they do have their good, while they do make good and solid points, that also is not the end of the road. We need to keep moving forward. What about our own spirituality? I would like to focus on that as well. Rather than just constantly pointing out the faults, the shortcomings, the miseries of what is happening with others. It's also nice to be able to show ways of improving our own spirituality, of coming more to the light, of becoming more enlightened, more knowledgeable, more loving. And so that's, it seems like we always harp on Mormonism. That is because it always tries to continue controlling everybody and controlling everything. And the more you try to grab the sand, the more it sifts through your fingers. They, of course, can't figure out what's wrong. Is that any surprise? <laughs> but we can. The problem is, there's no point in trying to control others. The Spirit bloweth where it will. That is scripture, right? So the trick is tap into that. One of the keys is through love, not necessarily prophesying to show off your own ego, right? Forget creating false miracles. Go find the real ones in your life. There are ways to do that, and I intend sincerely on making many, many videos showing the way to improve our own outlook, our own lives, to enlarge our own love, to become greater, more empathetic human beings with all of the other human beings, and to rise together, there are a lot of ways that can happen. And it is exciting. It is a difficult time we're living in right now with everyone wanting to do everything their own way. I've said it before and I'll say it again. We need to start paying a little bit more attention to the Hopi elders and to the Navajo elders. They do have YouTube videos. Many of them just five-minute videos. They're not asking for five and a half hours per video of your time. Just five minutes. And they, I think they have it right. We really are a distracted people. We are. We are distracted. Well, materialism has had its run. And ultimately, it is unsatisfying. Even though we have 
more wealth today, more comforts, more scientific power, more knowledge, etc., it's still not feeding our spiritual lives. There are ways we can do that, however. Not through someone else's command, desire, wish, or program. No, it's like the King Arthur very important tale of the search for the Holy Grail when one of the knights, you know, the Grail showed up at uh, King Arthur's round table and then it disappeared and a knight proposed, gosh, that would make a great quest. Let's go after that Grail. And so King Arthur said, yeah, get on your horse and ride away, boys. Well, as a knight was searching for the Grail, if he found the correct path, and he began down that path, and he was approaching closer and closer and closer to the goal of acquiring the Holy Grail. If another knight learned that that knight was on the correct path, the true path to the Holy Grail, and he began to follow that other knight, he was led astray. It's a very important mythology which gives us to understand that just because someone else is on the right path to, you know, spiritual enlightenment, spiritual fulfillment, what have you. That does not mean following that person's path is the correct choice. Each one of us have individual gifts, talents, knowledges, hopes, idiosyncrasies, as I call them, weirdness and all that jazz. Each one of us, it is to be dealt with. Spiritual attainment is to be dealt with on an individual way. Uh, Fred Allen Wolf, the fantastic book of Fred Allen Wolf, The Eagle's Quest, his shamanic voyage to understand truth. The shamans, as they helped the people gain insights to their own visions, etc. Not all visions were the same. Not all experiences during those ceremonies were the same, nor were they intended to be. And not all interpretations had to fit a certain preconceived mode in order for them to have had a true spiritual experience. That's really important. That ties into what I'm trying to say. I can give you ideas on what I'm doing, and I'm enjoying it, and it's working for me. That doesn't necessarily mean it'll work for you, but it does work. The key is find your own bliss. I mean, criticize them all you want. Joseph Campbell got that one right. So did Mercedes Iliada. A lot of people say, well, they're outdated these days. Bonk. Don't buy into that noise. Spirituality never is outdated. What is outdated is the modern skeptical scholars are taking away the spirituality out of the ancient myths, the ancient stories, the ancient scriptures, various experiences of other religious groups, and they're building their own skepticism into their interpretation of the material, and then they're saying, see, now we're updated. Anything before 1950 is outdated. Bunk. I don't buy into that at all. You can't stamp your own skepticism into a spiritual tradition and then say, oh, well, now that's old. That's outdated. Come up to today's truer version. I don't buy that noise at all.
And I would encourage you not to either, because that's just, that's more brainwashing, right? <laughs> it really is. Kind of a fun thing to recognize, yeah? So we each have our own path. Well, I can point out various different kinds of paths and ways that could help you find a path if you feel like you haven't found a path. I can share some of my experiences on my path that will overlap with everyone else's experiences on your own, etc. But if I ever arrive and have my experience of the divine, it doesn't necessarily objectify that as the only true experience you can have. Otherwise, your experience is false. See, that is the downfall of the Mormon approach. And it's a wrong approach. This is where the myths can help us understand how to go through our own hero journey. Because we're on it. It's not going to happen someday. We're in it right now. We're on it. So it's exciting stuff. So anyway, that's all. I'm getting preachy again. Sorry. Be good, do well, have fun, work hard, get lots of sleep, eat healthy, love one another. Uh, I don't say that idly, sincerely. Love is a true key. Sometimes when you're angry, yeah, it's hard to feel love for others. I get that. I, I know, I've been there. And, and then you end up criticizing and all that, and everyone says, see, look how miserable they are. Not really. There are, well, there is a process to go through. And every one of us is going to go through that process. That's called life, right? Yeah. So don't worry when it happens, because it always happens. What matters is how you react to events that occur because reality is a living, fluctuating, moving, exciting thing. It's not just dead, static, quiet. That's up to you to become quiet while observing so that you can absorb more information sometimes. Sometimes you have to be noisy, other times you have to be quiet. Sometimes you have to watch, other times you have to teach. Sometimes you have to learn, other times you just have to walk away from it and go park yourself in the woods or by a river. I mean, there's all these wonderful experiences we're all going to go through, and I'm going to keep making videos showing why those are valuable and why it's important to shuffle off and refute others' attempts at getting you under their control. That's also important. So, anyway, thanks for watching my videos. I will see you in the next Backyard Professor video.